Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Uh, We're going to keep working through, learning through the Sermon on the Mount. Let's talk about it for a moment. Um, Do you remember... I hope you do at this point. I hope we get a gold star for for answering a few of these review questions at this point. Obviously, I'll take the easy ones. Uh, Jesus is the one who's doing the teaching. Um, It's the longest recorded sermon we have of his in the Gospels, and we're looking at Matthew's account of Jesus' sermon. It took place on a mountainside by the Sea of Galilee. Here's here's, Here's a review question for you. Who's his primary audience? Who are the first group of people who, who listened in? They got there early, they got a good seat, and they heard the whole thing from beginning to the end. What group of people? Disciples. Now, what's a disciple? Anybody care to venture a, a short definition? A follower. That's really, that's really, really good. Uh, can you be a disciple of only Jesus, or could, it, could you be a disciple of someone else? Yeah, you could be a disciple of anyone. I, uh, I volunteer as a, as a coach for Little League Baseball, and I can tell which players on our team and on other teams watch a lot of baseball on television because they spit like a certain player. They want to wear their hair like a certain player. They'll put their, you know, if they use eye black, they'll wear eye black like a certain player. Uh, If it's a favorite player of theirs, they want to mimic their batting stance or the way they throw the ball or even the way they celebrate after a play. They're disciples of, you know, whether it's Adley Rutschman or Mike Trout or Bryce Harper or one of the players on TV. And what does it mean? They're not necessarily a follower in the sense they might not even know the person, but they're on a journey to be like that person. They want to swing like they swing, run like they run. They want to earn like they earn. They want to be like that person. A disciple is a follower who follows someone in order to be more like them. That's what a a disciple is. And so Jesus, this is early in his ministry, there's disciples around him. And there's two people in that category. There's the, the disciples that Jesus went and said, hey, you, leave your job and do what? Come and follow me and then there's the others who you know I don't know we don't have a story to say that Jesus did the same thing but they said I volunteer to follow you I'm gonna just leave and follow you so you've got the called followers the volunteer followers and then as the sermon goes on he's got maybe some would-be followers some aspiring followers some people who are following him today and they're listening to what he's teaching and along the way they are thinking about and considering whether or not they should kind of really deeply commit like I'm going to cut the tie and I'm going to follow him. Now this is extremely important. These are the primary people Jesus is speaking to. So as he's talking and he's looking into their eyes, he's Everything that he's saying meant something special to those people that day in that moment. And that's, we don't want to lose that in all this. Now, this is early in Jesus' ministry. Think about the disciples, the 12, the 70. In a short time, those of you that have read further on in the Gospels, what would 
before the cross, but after this sermon, somewhere in the middle, there's an interesting part in Jesus's ministry where he changes their itinerary a little bit. He doesn't say, come with me. What does he do? He sends them out. Remember, he sends them out two by two like animals in the ark. No, he sends them out. And what were they supposed to do? Make more disciples, spread the gospel. Awesome. Does he give them all a per diem? Do you know what a per diem is? Some of you do. Some of you are like, I wish my business would do that, right? Does Jesus give them an envelope like the Major League Baseball players get when they go on a road trip and the traveling secretary is there with an envelope filled with cash for their meal money for the week? No. Does, give them a f- Does Jesus say, listen, before you go, we're all going to TJ Maxx on me. We're all going to famous footwear. Get some, get some prehistoric Crocs for all of you guys, right? But think about it. What would their daily life look like when they go out to teach and preach? How would they eat? Generosity of other people or, or their own pockets or... There's probably a number of different ways, but it's like, look, the reality is there's probably 10 or 12 different ways. They didn't know exactly. They might have to work on this side. They might. But Jesus knew their future would involve having to trust that they're going to eat every day and they're not going to necessarily be going back to their old jobs to earn the money to do it. How would they handle it if they were walking down the road and got a flat sandal? They'd either have to fix it, hobble along, depend on the generosity of somebody else, take some money they've saved up. Maybe Jesus gives them all a few coins from you know, Judas's treasury bag. I don't know. I do want you to be aware of as we read this, Jesus is quite aware that the life that, that following him is going to require that these disciples that are listening to him can mature to the point where they are not consumed with materialism or they'll quit. He doesn't say that what they eat is unimportant and unnecessary. That would be hypocritical. God wired us to require food and drink to live. God provides life and life is superior to food and drink, but we need food and drink in order to live. But the point he's making is, if you, can, if you can grab on and believe that my father and I created you and gave you life, then you should be able to trust us for the lesser of those things, which is that we can provide for you food and drink to sustain that life. But Jesus knew right out of the gate, if you're going to be my follower, your obsessive worrying about life's basic necessities or your constant pursuit of more stuff, more things, more real estate, more house, more coffee, more clothes, this pursuing of more stuff to make you feel satisfied, if you can't put those things farther down on your priority list and those things trump your, your relationship to Jesus, it's incompatible with kingdom living. 
And so he's talking to these people on the mountainside about practical, physical, material things. Cash, money, salary, clothes. He's talking about, like we talked about last week, he's talking about the extras of life, excess, treasures, things you have enough that you can at least store it in an extra drawer or something, just extra things, the non-basic necessities. And his message is, those things aren't evil. Those things aren't righteous. They have no moral character whatsoever. He said, but you've got to be aware of how what you are looking to those things to provide for you. And if you look to things to provide for you, they're your master. They're your savior. They will control you and there will never be enough. And if that's the case, when you have to make a choice in the pecking order of life, those things will always be at least one ahead of the role you put on following Jesus and on being loyal and obedient to him. And you can't have it that way. But the thing that Jesus does throughout this sermon is he says things over and over and over. Think about, look at, consider. He uses those verbs more often in this message than choose, react. He's inviting you and me, who I think probably most of us in this room, let's say we're disciples of Jesus, we follow him and we're on a journey of Christ-likeness. He says, okay, but then I need you at different times. I need you to consider this carefully. I want you to think this all the way through the implications. Of this Really devote some thought to this. I'm not asking you to just swallow this and follow it blindly. I want you to think. He just got done asking us to think about who really is your master. Is it material things? Or is it the Lord? And he says, be careful, be very careful, because material things can seduce you into thinking that those things, if you simply have enough of a certain kind of wealth, of a certain type of possession or thing, of a certain kind of relationship, that if you can grab hold of that and possess it and have it, then you'll be content, then you'll be happy, then you'll be secure then you'll like yourself. And if you don't have it, or worse, you have it and then you lose it, it gets stolen, it fades, it decays. There's probably, you know, like I, you know, I, people all the time, you know, we're getting ready for summer, you want to look a certain way when you go to the beach, and so you beat yourself to death for a couple weeks, you go to the beach, and then six months later, you don't look like that anymore. And then you feel worse about yourself. Why do we do this to ourselves? This is what Jesus is saying saying it's not that those things are unimportant, but when you think you have to possess that in order to feel content, then that thing has become your savior. That thing has become your Lord. And then you can say, oh, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm living in such misery and worry and anxiety and, and low self-esteem or, or just sub obsession and control and drivenness because, yeah, I have Jesus, but I don't have two and a half times my annual salary in a bank account over here, or I don't fit into this pair of jeans, or I don't have a new enough vehicle, or I haven't built my real estate empire, or I, whatever it might be. And that's what we talked about last week. He talked to these disciples first. He said, you have to choose what your master is going to be. And then this part 
follows naturally. If you choose material things to be your master, here's what you can expect, a lifetime of worrying about material things. It will control your thinking. You'll never be at rest. You'll obsess. You'll worry. You'll get anxiety. You'll constantly be uneasy. You'll be on edge. Or if the Lord is your master, then you can have peace over material things. You can have them. You cannot have them. You can have them and lose them. You can lose them and regain them. You can have a lot. You can have a little. You can have excess or just enough or maybe not even just enough in your own estimation. Now, most people I talk to want what I just described. We want peace over material things. All my unbelieving friends, they all want peace over material things. That's what they want. Their pathway is to get the material thing. The pathway Jesus says is, I can deliver you the peace whether you get it or not. I'm in. I'm in. Well, well, okay, well, I talk to a lot of people who here's their thing. I know Jesus. I agree with this lesson. I know it. I'm just not experiencing it. In theory, I get it, but in practice, I'm not very good at this. There is a diagnosis for that. It's called normal. We know in our heart, that's the life I should live. That's the life I want to live. I don't want to be consumed with worry over material things. And we're all different. There's some material things you probably don't worry about. But then there maybe are some one or two things you do. And if you're honest with yourself, those one or two things... You either don't have it, you don't have enough of it, or you had it and you lost it. Or worse, you have it, and it's still not making you feel the way you hoped it would make it. you feel now that you have it. So Jesus invites us into this conversation. And we read together in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. I'll read it to you. I'll be reading out of the NIV today. So if you have the NLT, you'll have just a few words that are different here. Therefore, I tell you, Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food? Isn't your body more than just clothes? Look at, I love this, look at, consider, think about, observe, the birds of the air. They don't sow, S-O-W, or reap, they don't store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable than they are? Can any one of you, by employing the strategy of worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See, consider, look, observe how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor, they don't work, right? They don't spend, they don't have the ability to open up a textile manufacturing place and make for themselves clothing. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow 
Someone will invent a lawnmower, cut it all up, bag it up, and burn it in their burn barrel in Baltimore County, right? Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them. But, could you, you know this one, right? But seek first. Now, here's the thing you might not have thought about before. He tells you to seek two things, not just one. Seek first. What are the two? What's the thing number one? Seek first his kingdom. And there's a second thing. I don't know why he separates. Well, we kind of do. But he separates. And what else should you seek? His right. Not just righteousness. His righteousness. Because weren't the Pharisees already chasing after righteousness? But it was a righteousness based on the checklist. All the things you can do and not do. Obeying the law. Keeping the do's and the don'ts perfectly. Jesus is saying that doesn't contribute to worrylessness. That contributes to stress. Oh, I tripped on a banana peel today. God's going to get me tonight. You know, there's going to be an angel at the door waiting to when I get home. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you as well, given to you as well. They're add ons. And if that's not enough, he's going to just drop, like, listen, if you don't want the spiritual reason, let me give you some common sense. Here's the how do I stop worrying common sense side of things. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So if you, well, I don't believe in all the existential spiritual stuff. Okay, well, let's start here and work backwards. What can you do about tomorrow today? There's only one. There's two things you can do about it. Worry about it and plan for it. That's it. That's all you can do. You will never make a decision on tomorrow. Every decision in life you'll ever make will happen on a today. And so the point is, the big idea, worrying doesn't work. It doesn't. Now, I'm going to prepare you. I realize when I bring up two words, worry and anxiety, we could make this very broad, and I know that there are, I'll just speak for myself, there's probably people here or listening to this message. And when I talk about worry and anxiety, you're like, oh, no, I've been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. I have a form of mental illness, and it's one of the, I have, I've been diagnosed with one of the six different categories of, of anxiety disorders, PTSD, or general anxiety disorder, or obsessive-compulsive disorder, or, or social anxiety disorder. In just a moment, I'm going to spell out for you. Here in this passage is what Jesus is specifically forbidding, and what he's not forbidding. The kind of worry, what I'm telling you is worry is a complex topic. There's different flavors of worry. There's different causes of worry. There's different reasons why people worry. And I want to be clear, Jesus is being very specific about a kind of worry about a kind of thing. And that this is not a passage that we just right-click on and we stretch it and we say, anytime anyone says the word worry, it's a sin. No. It's a little more nuanced than that, and I'll, and I'll show you that in just a moment. But he, uh, way back to the beginning, let me just give you a couple definitions, okay? Worrying, 
as Jesus is defining it, means this. Worrying is the antithesis, the opposite of practical trust in God. That's what Jesus sets it up. He says, you cannot at the same time say, I trust God and I'm worried that God will take care of me. Those things don't work. Trust says, I know him, I believe in him, I'm confident in him, I, my conscience is serene and peaceful under his care. The opposite of that says, I'm worried because I don't trust him. He's not a good dad. He has a faulty track record. Two weeks ago, he forgot about me, left me on the stoop when he said he'd pick me up. Therefore, I don't trust him, and I'm worried now. Worrying is the opposite of basic faith and trust in God. Now, when I say it that way, is it possible for me to be a Christian and not believe in God? No, (laughs) you can't. Believe and repent. Well, I don't really believe, but I'm willing to repent. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. We believe. We believe that we have a father who loves us and cares for us, spared not his own son for us. Worry is an indication that you don't believe in the God who reveals himself to us as a good father who cares for us. So that's one of the roots of worry is that I don't believe, it's one of two things. I don't believe God knows about my needs or I don't believe God cares about my needs. That's one of the roots of worry. And that's what he's going after here. Jesus is looking ahead saying, if you're consumed by this kind of worry, it's either because you think I know what you need and I don't care, or that I don't know what you need, so I'm not acting. And he goes after both of those things. Because remember, he just got done saying, there's three spiritual things all my followers do. They all do them. It's common to all of them. He starts out in chapter 6. What are the three spiritual things all he says all his followers do? Give me one of them. When you pray, right? He says, when you pray, don't pray like them. In fact, that's if you want to summarize the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's this. Don't be like them. He says it once in that passage, that passage, that's the theme, and you'll see it again. Don't be like them. Citizens in my kingdom are not like them. We're the opposite of them. We live this way. We think this way. When we take to court, we respond this way. When we've done someone wrong, we act this way. When someone's done us wrong, we act that way. When it comes to material excess, we don't serve it, it serves us. When it comes to our basic necessities, we don't worry about them. They worry about them. We don't. They chase material things. We're at peace with how much we have. All through this whole sermon, he's going to say, think about it. You're going to be in one of two kingdoms. This is how this kingdom operates. This is how my kingdom operates. Consider it. Think about it. You can't customize. It's one or the other. He just got done saying, all of my followers pray. And guess what he says? And people who aren't my followers pray. But we pray differently for different motives, for different reasons, on a different basis. They pray because they think they have leverage over God because they've been paying the rent by following the law and he's obligated to fix their washing machine because they've been behaving. We pray because we have a dad. And he cares. And we enjoy being with him and him with us. What are the other things he says? When you pray, when you, when you give, he doesn't say if you give, when you give. 
That's something we're going to be thinking about as a church family through this month of June. We're going to be thinking about giving of our material things. People outside God's kingdom give too. Very charitable. But Jesus says they give because of how it makes them feel. I'm a charitable person. I'm compassionate. I get out of this. Or they do it to be noticed so that other people see them and think some kind of way about them. Jesus says, well, no, inside my kingdom, we're still givers. Pastor, that's Old Testament. No, it's Bible. It's Bible. We give. We give out of obedience because God expects and commands and teaches in the Old Testament and the New. Jesus says, I thank God to the Pharisees. He says, I thank God that you tithe right down to the spices in your spice rack. But I wish you would be as concerned about the other parts of the law, like love and faithfulness and justice. I'd like you to continue the latter without giving up the former. The Apostle Paul talks in his letters to all of the churches. He assumes they give, but he gives them direction in giving because there's brand new Christians in these new churches. They've just gotten saved. They don't, when Paul says give and take up an offering, they don't have any, well, how much should we give? We don't know. We need some sort of an idea. And Paul says give in proportion to what you earn. A percentage. That's what you give. We give because God gave. Jesus gave. We're trying to be like Jesus. We give out of obedience to the Lord. And then there's another kind of giving that's giving above and beyond what's expected. My boys aren't being generous when I tell them to take out the trash and they go take out the trash. They're being obedient. When they also clean up the yard and do the weeding that I didn't ask them to do, that's being generous. There's a kind of giving where we all begin and we begin with obedience. You don't get to generosity by skipping obedience. We obey. We give to God first. Earners are givers in the Bible. If you don't earn, you don't have to give. But if you earn, we give. We give to God first. We give him a portion, a percentage. Old Testament teaches 10%. New Testament doesn't give you hard and fast. You must do this. It doesn't abolish the old one. Jesus affirms it. Paul doesn't seem to keep bringing it back up, but he does say proportionately. And that's where most people at Echo Community Church and most churches start. They just... You know, you know, one percent, five percent, seven percent, whatever it is that you can't. But it's the first; it's not the leftovers. I don't. I don't spend all I want to spend. Vacation all I want to vacation. Shop all I want to shop. Subscribe all I want to su- subscribe. And then, if I have leftovers, I give it to the Lord. You wouldn't do that to a guest in your own home. Well, you know what? I knew you were coming over today, and so I ate everything in the fridge, but I got some pizza crusts left. I've got that part of the pizza that we've picked everything off that we all want, and you can have the. How honored would they be? Oh, but God should be thankful for whatever I can, you know, this, you know, I put a few dimes in the thing. No, we give them first. But then there's a type of giving that is above and beyond what God expects. That's not commanded. The passage where it says God loves a cheerful giver is talking about a missions offering. 
It's not talking about the basic proportionate giving. Well, if I can't be happy about it, then I should just wait till I get happy till I give. No. I don't wait till my boys are happy to take out the trash. Because their, their hesitation is a result of something in their heart that's not working. There should just be, in a healthy father-son, father-child relationship, there should just be a mutual love and respect for the other that he says, as a result of everything that my dad is giving me that I can't contribute to, I can take out the trash. But he's, you know, my boys are 11 and 6. They don't understand mortgages. They don't, they don't understand all that. I take care of that. Their mom and I take care of that. And you would like to think that, you know, if you've ever been a parent, or if you've, especially, we've all been a child. We know we're not always enthusiastic about obedience, but the older you get, you look back and you say, you know what, I really didn't have it that bad. Why did I? <laughs> Giving, same way. We like to find verses in the New Testament. Well, in the New Testament it says, don't give out of compulsion. Don't right. He's talking about, read the passages. He's talking about taking up a collection for the hungry saints in Jerusalem. He's not talking about supporting the church and the pastors whose salary he endorses and the ministry of their church and the local ministry that they have there. He's not talking about that. He's talking about this other stuff and says, listen, don't be bullied into giving above and beyond. So listen, that's what we do here when it comes to missions, when all the different things that you support, outreach events and the Gabriel Network and Feed One and Convoy of Hope and 22 missionaries and Samaritan's Purse, we don't put you under any type of guilt or if you want to participate you can participate participate the question is what would my heart like to give and what will my wallet allow me to give and somewhere in that intersection is what you should give i'd like to write a check for a million dollars but i only have 38 dollars in the checking account please don't write the million dollar check it will cost us 39 dollars jesus makes the assumption that there's spiritual things all his followers do but they're not unique to his followers. He's saying pretty much even the pagans do some of these things. It's why we do them. So he talks about giving. He talks about praying, and Pastor Zach talked about fasting. He made it three days and then destroyed some steakhouse pasta. I love when you said way back in my earlier life when I was in college. Dude, that was like three years ago. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, how old do I feel now? He's like, Way back three years ago when I was in college, I was, telling, I was talking to Suba this week about when I was in college. He's like, oh, well, when did you take that course? And I sat and I thought, and I said, oh, yeah, 28 years ago. That's a long time. My college is now in the first half of my life. I have lived, it's crazy. So you'll get there at some point, but I appreciate that. Please don't change that in the second service. That was great. But, um, but Jesus does hammer home the spiritual things. We do spiritual things for spiritual reasons. We give, we fast, we pray. But now he's not just talking spiritual. He's talking about the practical stuff. Your budget. Shelter. Food. Hydration. They didn't have medical insurance and transportation, things like that. But it, we'd lump that in today. Your basic necessities, a way to get around. way to communicate. Basic access to, to health care. And I know there's some debate about what necessities are or aren't. But that's what he's talking to them about. And I want to be very clear because this passage gets diluted, unfortunately. We need to be very, very clear about what worry is. It's the opposite of trusting God for the practical things. It's the opposite of faith. I, I, I came up with a definition a couple years ago that I think flows into this. Worrying is the inevitable result of using overthinking to control the uncontrollable. 
every time you and I get into obsessive, not just thinking, but overthinking about something we can't control. First of all, it's going to fall into one of two categories, the past or the future. When you start worrying as the result of obsessively trying to fix something that's behind you, regretting, redoing, rehearsing, or trying to affect the outcome of something that is future, it's later today, it's tomorrow. And the strategy you're using to try and move that to a satisfying result to you is thinking about it and overthinking and overthinking and overthinking. You know what you're going to get to? Worry. It's inevitable. And Jesus says, a life of worry about the supply of tomorrow's material necessities is incompatible with being a Christian. It is needless, it is pointless, it is useless, and it will absolutely consume and control you. Every resting moment of your life, it will control you. It will affect your thoughts and your mood. And when those things are off on the inside of you, it's going to impact other people too. That person who lost their mind at the barista yesterday, maybe it wasn't just because the latte had three pumps of this and two shakes of that instead of four and seven. Or maybe that was just a sideways way that something else just tumbled out. And now it affects the barista's day and maybe your coffee. And then in effect, you see how that goes. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to be my follower, a couple things. You can't be consumed with chasing after excess thinking that will make your life complete. I have to be your Lord and I have to be supreme. I can't be second to that. He says, but also, you need to just retire your habit of worrying about where tomorrow's dinner is going to come from or where your rent payment for six months from now is coming from, or anything. How am I going to be able to marry? Am I ever going to have this? Am I ever going to have that? Am I going to lose it? He says, you can't be consumed with worry about those things because those things will always drive you. They will control you, and your conscience will never be at rest. So how do we do that? How do we do that? He gives it to us here. So we've answered the question, what is worry? I need to answer the question in this passage because I know it's familiar. What is Jesus not forbidding and what is he forbidding? Because, and, I, and if you've got the study guide, there's tons of this stuff in there and, and won't go through it this morning, but there's tons of writing in here, especially uh, if you find Arthur Pink's stuff in here. He really takes a hard interpretation of this and it's right, but it has to be held in balance. And he's saying at the end of the day, when Jesus says, don't do this, If you do it, it is a sin. And what he's saying is, this kind of worry, if Jesus forbids it, if we choose it, it is sin. And all sin needs to be repented of and we need to be cleansed from it. And there is a kind of worrying that is sinful against the Lord. But what is Jesus not forbidding here? Because I've also heard this passage saying we should be Different things. We should be laissez-faire, hands-off. When it comes to material things, hakuna matata, baby, don't worry. Don't work. Don't earn. 
Don't save, don't budget, don't plan, just trust that either the Lord will supply it for you or someone else will feel bad enough for you that they'll give it to you and you don't have to work for anything. You are entitled. No. No. That's not, Jesus in this passage is not forbidding forethought. He's not forbidding planning. He is not forbidding responsibility. He is not forbidding uh, working for it. In fact, he actually will, will show you at one point. He's pro-working to earn. The Bible's, in fact, the Bible says if you don't work for it, you shouldn't eat. Yeah, we get excited about that one about as much as the giving thing a minute ago. I said give, Bible commands giving nothing in the room, right? <laughs> Bible says if you don't work, you shouldn't expect to eat. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I want to amen men that. The people next to me will think I'm mean. Now, I'll say it. You can just sit there and look at me, right? Doesn't, doesn't forbid concern. He doesn't forbid stewardship and management. None of those things are forbidden here. So we can't read this passage and say what not worrying looks like is apathy. It looks like, no, the opposite of worry is trust, not apathy. I just don't care. I just spend and spend and spend and spend. And Lord will take care of me. No! <laughs> so what the Bible says. He's forbidding you not trusting him to know your needs or to be able to supply your needs and being consumed with thinking that the better choice of trust is overthinking about things I can't control anyway. That's what he's forbidding obsessive and anxious thinking about the future supply of your basic material needs. That's the worry he's talking about. I mentioned clinical anxiety and worry. Here's my little, I have a longer one, I'll give you the little one. Our brain is an organ and it can get sick. Your kidneys, they're organs, can they get sick? Yeah. Pancreas, can it get sick? Yeah. You with me so far? Listen, what's good practical advice for someone who thinks they're having kidney problems? What should they do? Come on now. I know we've got some medicine people in here. Where do you, where do you start, at least where do you start the process? Go see the doctor. What else can you do in addition to that? You can pray. You can call for the elders of the church and have them pray with you and believe God for healing for your kidneys. When you go to your doctor, doctor, she's probably going to give you or he's probably going to give you you know, a diagnosis, maybe go take some more tests, maybe change this part of your diet, stop doing something, start doing something. Is that good advice? Right, yeah, we're going to treat your kidneys physically, we're going to treat them spiritually. You might be getting some anxiety. Is this kidney disease? Is this going to shorten my life? Is this, you, there's an emotional part of this too and a relational part of this too. But nobody thinks anybody's being a bad Christian if they're having problems with their kidneys, if they go to their doctor and they pray and they get treatment, that's just being responsible. That's just stewarding your body. But you also understand that we're a holistic person. And when there's a problem in one area, it impacts the other ones. It tumbles over and all of those things need to be considered in the process. We need to get rid of the stigma that your brain is the one organ that it's bad for you to get help for. It's the only organ that has to figure out that it's sick and report itself. 
I believe in a God who created our bodies and that he put organs in there and those organs can all get sick, but there's healing available through lots of different ways. Through spiritual touch of God, there's relational healing available, emotional healing available, physical healing available. And we have to look at all of those areas together. And so what I want you to understand is there is also a mental illness possibility here. Another reason why you might be concerned with worry is because there's part of your mind that has gotten sick. It's fallen ill. And as a result, maybe of something that happened to you, an experience that you had, or just part of your mind that's not functioning in full health, the result might be one of these other mental illness disorders. And if you struggle with that, and I have been, okay, like uh, 2007, so that's what, 15, 16, 16 years ago, I was diagnosed with social anxiety disorder. That's hard to have when you're a pastor. You can't just run to your office every time you see people and curl up in the fetal position. Can't do that. Well, I mean, you could, but people would be like, what is wrong with him, all right? There's all kinds of reasons for that. I'm not here today to just bear my whole physical history to you. There's HIPAA laws and other things that tell me I shouldn't do that. But, you know, I, I, I've struggled for a long time by people inside of the kingdom telling me, well, man, you just need to pray that through and just stop it. Trust me, if that worked, I would. All kinds of different things that I tried. And what I can tell you is that this many years later, the Lord is gradually helping me along. Healing me, helping me to grow. And But I, I read a passage like this and I get tension. I'm like, don't worry. But it wasn't worrying about tomorrow's provisions that was controlling me. It was worrying about other things that aren't mentioned in this passage. Some of them as a result of just bad thinking. Some of them as a result of my mind just wasn't working right. And I needed to get help in the areas. Jesus is not condemning a person who's been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. to, a, to He's basically saying you've com- you're committing the unpardonable sin now. Because... This is your clinical diagnosis and you're getting treatment, but until you're completely healed, you're in violation of this law of mine. That's not what he's saying. He's specifically talking about the type of worry that says, I don't trust my father to provide my basic necessities, and I am obsessive about this worrying and fretting about trying to control things in the future related to material things that I can't control because worrying doesn't work. This is what he's talking about. That's what he's forbidding. So is that clear enough to do? I need to spend any more time on this. He's not condemning people who, as a result of perhaps a mental illness or PTSD or social anxiety disorder, have an element of worry in their life. It's a specific kind of worry related to the future provision of your material things. I don't know if you got it or not, but I got to keep trucking. Here we go. Why should you care about what Jesus has to say? Very simply, because that kind of worry that he's talking about, incompatible with Christianity. He knew right now. Listen, and two... In a year, I'm sent, he didn't tell him. In a year, I'm sending y'all out to go preach, to go itinerate, to go travel, to be evangelists and missionaries. And you're not going to get a direct deposit every two weeks. But I'm giving you an assignment. But for you to stay faithful to that assignment, I'm not asking you to go out there and just starve yourself and see how many days you can make it. You just have to trust me. And how do you get there? Something else has to be more supreme in your heart than your material comfort. That's the only way this ever works. The only way you can ever get there 
as if something else in your heart is more supreme. It lights you up more. It satisfies you more. It excites you more. It makes you tingle more. It motivates you more than even your material comfort and provision. The kingdom of God and his righteousness has to be that supreme thing in your heart. And it has to light you up, motivate you, excite you, drive you, fulfill you, satisfy you, make you curious, wire you, animate you. It has to be supreme because whatever is supreme in your heart, it will make sure there's no room for lesser things. And if that pursuit of material comfort is supreme in your heart, it'll make sure there's no room for you to be excited about the kingdom of God. Not to that level. If you're more concerned about material comfort, your heart won't allow space for you to give to your church. Won't. I can tell you all day, give, 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 and you'll be like, but I don't want to. Why? Why you don't want to? Something else is supreme in your heart. Because if you want to and you can, you do. If you can and you don't want to, you won't. If you can't and you don't want to, you won't. If you want to and you can't, you won't. But if you want to and you can, you will. How do you get there? That has to be supreme in your heart. That's why he says, oh, Pastor, okay, I'm just going to go home and grit my teeth. Stop worrying. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And the more you say that, the more you worry. Oh, now I'm not stopping it. Oh, now you're worried about worrying. But Jesus says, listen, if my kingdom agenda, your fellowship with me, the evangelization of the world, the enjoyment with your father, the relation, if that become supreme in your heart, the righteousness that Jesus gives us, that you just get and you don't have to go out there every day and earn. If that becomes supreme, all these other things will fall neatly into place. Because whatever is supreme pushes all those things into their right holding place. I told you a few weeks ago that citizens in God's kingdom live differently. That's what Jesus is talking about. My kingdom is a whole different counterculture, totally different, totally the reverse But it's not always, and you do this. I know most of you pretty well. Not all of you, but most of you. You live differently. I don't mean that as a backhanded, you know, as a front-faced insult, right? We're different. Bible calls us peculiar. We live differently. Why? Well, because we forced you through 38 weeks of brainwashing and said, no, 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 no. You live differently because... Someone different lives inside of you. Something has changed inside of you. It has changed. It is changing. And it will continue to change. You're on a journey of Christ-likeness, and it means you think about things differently. You react differently. It's almost like there's a new and different creature inside of you that's supplying for you a whole different lens through which you see and a whole different set of ears through which you hear all of life. That's the Spirit of God living within you. And as a result of that, the reason we live differently isn't always because we've just picked up a new set of behaviors. It's the reason we live differently sometimes is you, you know something that you didn't know before. And as a result of, you, you know some secret things that you don't know until you come into relationship with Jesus. And that's how you get to this point of stopping worrying. Cessation of worrying about tomorrow's needs is the result of some things you know that others just might not know. Some things you believe that others might not believe. I'll give them to you. Here's the four things. Citizens, disciples of Jesus Christ are not consumed with worry about our material needs because we know that. I'll work through these quickly. Here, 
You know this, life is more than material stuff, right? He who dies with the most toys, <laughs> you say loses, right? Maybe, maybe not. But you've seen the bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. What does that mean? Life is material things, and it's only material things. Good life, most things. Pitiful life, no things. Jesus begins with this simple question, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or what you'll wear. Isn't your life, basically what he's saying is, think about this for a second. Don't you think, if you're my follower now, disciples, you know that your life, we don't put my life equals sign and then a numeral. But you know what you can do right now on, on the Google machine? You take any celebrity you want and type in net worth and it'll spit out a number. Might be right, might not. I don't know how they come up with those things sometimes. I mean, you put in mine, you won't find it, right? It's that big, you won't see it. No, I'm just kidding. Most of life in the world that we live in will say your life equals a number, a size, a resume. And there is some reality to that. But Jesus is saying, if you're my disciple, you understand that at the end of the day, even when this life ends, is life ended? One of you got this. Jesus, help me. When your life ends, is your life over? No. Life continues forever and ever and ever. Don't you believe that? And if you believe that, then you also have to say that my life is material things, but it's more than material things. It's not only material things. And if it's not only material things, and compared to eternity, this is just whisper thin. Your life is just a vapor. It's, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. In fact, none of us, I'll be morbid, you don't know if you're gonna make it through the afternoon. Now that'll preach. I've started to sweat, you better listen now, okay? I'm working hard, I promise you. I'm asking you to do what Jesus is asking you. Think about this for just a moment. If you really believe in your heart that your life is more than material things, then why are you worried about them? If you know, listen, you don't see a U-Haul truck following a hearse. You can't take it with you. Well, then I shouldn't have it. That's not what it's saying either. What it's saying is it shouldn't have you. It shouldn't have your mind. It shouldn't cost you sleep. It shouldn't make your hair fall out. No jokes. It shouldn't make you obsess and worry. Jesus is saying, isn't your life more than your basic necessities. He doesn't say it's less than. He doesn't say they're unimportant. Disciples of Jesus say, listen, at the end of the day, life is more than how big my house is. Life is more than how new my kitchen is. Life is more than the number on the scale. Life is more than my net worth. Now, those are all realities of life that we traffic in. But my life is more than that. How do you stop worrying? You grab onto this. I understand at the end of the day, material things are important, but my life is more than that. If I lose my material things, I don't have to stop feeling like I can live. 
if I have, and it's very rare in this part of the world where you go from having everything to having literally nothing. It's a process, but listen, you could have less. My salary went down. Life is more than that. Life is more than material things. I'll keep going. Number two. Here's another thing he says that you got to get. God values people and their basic material needs more than all his other creation and their basic material needs. This is the other thing Jesus says is like, look, this is, and this is brilliant how he does this, and you got to catch all of it or you'll misinterpret this passage. They're sitting on a mountainside. My guess is he's, if he says, look at the birds of the air, he's not asking them to look at an empty sky. There are probably some birds that flew by. Or else they'd just be sitting there. Jesus, I don't get it. You have to do a magic trick again. Larry, Leroy, come on. You know, like, and make him fly. He says, look at the birds of the air. Basically, he says, you know, they're not on Prozac. Hasn't been invented yet. You don't see a bird, like, just sitting by the side of the road, like, oh. You know, another bird with his wing over top. You know, it's going to be okay. The nest is broken down again, you know. They're all out of worms. What does he say exactly? It's, 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 it's brilliant how he says it. They don't sow. What does he mean by that? That's an agricultural term. He's like, birds don't sow. What does he mean by that? They don't plant seeds. Why not? This is important. They can't. That's why they don't. That's the point he was making. See, a lot of us are like, well, no, they just, they just trust God for it. No, they don't have, God did not even create birds with the ability to feed themselves. They can't work for it. They do work. Don't, don't miss that. It's not like they just sit in, well, the little birds do. They sit in there with their little beaks wide open, but mama bird got to go out and get the food, or daddy bird got, whoever does it, right? I don't know where daddy bird is in all these equations. You know, we could get in a whole different conversation about all that. My boys found a nest under the deck, and it was a, why does the mom go out and get the worm? And I'm like, okay, look, your mom's right here. We're not going to get into all this. We're just, they just make it work. I don't know. (laughs) It's not covered in Matthew 6, so I can't speak to it. I got to take out the trash. No, because you boys didn't, because you're ungrateful. But no, listen, that's a whole different story for another day. He says they don't sow. In other words, These birds, I did not equip them with the ability to even contribute to their own feeding. They don't sow. They don't, what what else he says? They don't sow. They don't reap. Well, obviously. In other words, they don't have the ability to go harvest crops. You know what else they can't do? Store away in barns. First of all, if a bird can't plant a seed, bird can't build a barn. Birds don't have freezers. They don't have vacuum seal. Birds do not even have the ability to take the food that they have and store it away so it doesn't perish. Basically what he's saying is as cool as they are, look at, I I withheld some special abilities from them. Of all of my creatures, these guys shouldn't have a a shot at survival, but yet, you know what? (laughs) Your father feeds them. comparatively speaking, what he says is, aren't you, he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Aren't you more valuable than they are? What's he saying? Well, and I know we get animal lovers who get very upset at these verses. God's not saying he doesn't love his creation, my goodness. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying he loves you more and he loves you most. Out of everything he's ever created, we're at the top of the list. That's what he's saying. 
And what he's also saying is, I've given you some abilities I haven't given them. I've given you the ability. Can you sow? Yes. Can you reap? Yes. That means can you work with the abilities God's given you to contribute to an environment where you can exchange those skills to get the capital to buy food? Or at the very least, can you go out and grow it yourself? Yes. Birds can't do that. And yet God takes care of them. Look at all the extra advantages you have. Why are you worried about it is what he's saying. Do you see that? Sometimes we just say, well, they, well they, we just need to, just like they do, just fly around and then God will bring us worms every day. No. Who wants to eat that? Isn't there a kid's book, How to Eat Fried Worms? There is. Oh, man, one person. That's how old I am. I'm sorry. Second grade coming back to me. Um, but look, that's what he's saying is, why are you worried? God values you more than all his other creations. And look how he takes care of his other creations. He hasn't even given them half the abilities that you have. You're set up for much more success than they are, and, and they haven't freaked out and worried about everything. Why are you? At the end of the, and he goes on, I don't have time, but he uses two other similes. He talks about, um, talks about the birds. He talks about the flowers. He talks about the grass. Same thing with those. Flowers aren't worried about how beautiful they look. And he says, look, even the wealthiest man that ever lived, Solomon, wasn't as beautiful as the flowers. And the flowers at the end of the day, they couldn't make their clothes, earn the money for it, open up textiles, and yet they weren't worried and I made them more beautiful. And a lot of them just caught under the lawnmower and were burned the next day. And if I can do that for grass that can't even take care of itself and I value you more and I've given you more abilities and options to contribute, why are you worried about that stuff? In other words, he's saying, not only can I supply it for you, I've given you the skills and the abilities to go out and get it. And if I've taken care of that with grass and I value you more, why are you worried? I don't think God cares about me. He cares about the grass. He cares about his flowers. He cares about the little fluffy birds. And can you really say, I believe in a Savior who loves me but doesn't care for me? Those two statements don't work. Number three, what else do we know that helps us stop worrying? This is the easiest one for me and the most common sense. Worrying about material things, just it's completely ineffective. It does not work. It just doesn't work. He asks a question in verse 27. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? There's a whole good backstory on this that I can't give you. Basically what he's saying is if you stayed up all night for 40 days straight worrying about living until you're 80, you know how much that... Here's the ironic thing, those of you that know medicine. What will that do to your lifespan? Yeah. Here's what he's saying at the end of the day. You know what we humans at least can wrap our minds around? If something repeatedly doesn't work, don't do that thing. It's like me saying, I want to lose 10 pounds before I go to the beach. So every night, here's why I, I, I you know, went down the YouTube rabbit hole, eat an entire cheesecake before I go to bed every night. That will not work. It is completely ineffective. So I stop doing that thing. If you buy a new toothpaste that's supposed to make your teeth change 28 shades in one day and it doesn't work, stop doing it. I'm in my office the other day. I go to the pen drawer. I grab a pen. I do this thing sometimes called writing on paper. I don't know if any of you, I know. Crazy. Zach, you see, we're right there. I know it's crazy, and I got out, and I actually literally, and I hand wrote my, you know, I added one more step to this whole studying enterprise, I'm going to take the study guide, and then my last thing is I'm going to write it out on one sheet, the most important stuff, put it on one sheet, so I can be done right where I'm at right now, it actually worked, 
Thank you, Jesus. And I started writing with one of my favorite pens. I got three sentences in, and it, it did that thing where it stops, and it's just making an indentation in the page. You know what I do at that point? I throw the pen in the trash, and I get a different one. You know what I didn't do? Keep writing for two hours. Just come up here today with a page with a bunch of indentations in it that no one can read. You know why I stopped? It's ineffective. Worrying doesn't work. I've tried it for decades. It doesn't work. Worrying about anything in your future is a waste of time. Planning? Plan. But plan in pencil. You can stay up all night worrying about, man, in 20 years, am I going to have enough to retire? All you're going to be the next day is tired. It is foolish to give one minute of your sleep to something that you can't control. For years, I was on these really heavy-duty sleep pills to help me fall asleep because you know what I was doing? I was worrying. All, I was just worrying. Honestly, it wasn't even just about material things. It was just about all kinds of stuff. I won't list it for you. I had a bad day at work last week, and now I'm up. Or I'm thinking about something I did 15 years ago that was bad, and I can't go to sleep, and I'm worried about I'm guilt and shame. I'm thinking about the future. How am I going to take care of this? And, you know, the job that I have is, you know, hey, the precarious nature. Am I, all these other things just going through my mind couldn't stop. They gave me medicine, made me fall asleep. You know, but what it didn't do, fix my worrying. just made me sleepy. And then we learned we were pregnant with our first. I'm like, I cannot be comatose at 2 in the morning and be useless. I'm going to have to get off this medicine. I'm going to have to trust Jesus to help me. And over years, listen, I sleep better now than I've ever slept before. Why? He's helping me to stop work. It's just no point. That meeting's going to be there tomorrow whether I stay up all night or not. I'd rather be well-rested. It's just ineffective. It doesn't work. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. I can't do anything about tomorrow other than plan for it and trust God for it. And when I've done that, go to sleep. Okay, number four. Here's the other thing we know. Our Father knows our material needs and he'll add them to us. I put it in your notes. You can read over that one. The reality is, is we understand that as human, Jesus knows we're seekers. Seek first the kingdom of God. He knows we're seekers. What does that mean? Every human being is a seeker and you should be seeking something. He made you to seek. But it's what you seek for first that is the domino for everything else that comes after that. And what he's saying here is that whatever is the supreme thing that you seek will push all those other things to a lesser place in your life. And as long as anything other than God's kingdom... And the righteousness that Jesus provides for us, if anything other than that animates you, holds you hostage, provides for you your source of peace and identity in life, anything other than that is supreme, you're going to fall down that trail and it's incompatible. You won't be able to make God's kingdom first. But when that transitions into that place, then you start to think like, then you can give or not give. You can give a lot or a little or in the middle and you're... Just free to be able to, you're free to live. It's called freedom. The other thing, there's no freedom to be found in materialism. That's bondage. Freedom is saying, I can have that kind of peace and satiety and purpose and identity regardless of what those things have in my life. And also understanding you have a father 
who knows what your needs are. The pagans don't think that way. They think, I don't have a father looking out for me. Or they think, there is a God, but he doesn't know or he doesn't care what my needs are. That's why they are consumed with these things. When you know, my God is on this. There's a tough question in this passage that I can't answer to your full satisfaction. Today was, well, what about all the birds that went extinct because they didn't have food? What about all the thousands of human beings that die, many of whom are believers, but they die because of famine? Is Jesus just asking us to be just altruistic and just existential and all this type of stuff and pie in the sky, but doesn't really want us to apply this? I think this, well, I know this passage doesn't address that concretely to our satisfaction. You've got to look wider in the Bible to get a fuller or a complete scope of that answer. But I think here's the reality. If Phil Nauer at the end of the day runs out of food and clothing and my life expires, but I have Jesus, what have I lost? Because all those things are just add-ons. That's a tough message. But what the message isn't is that people that die from famine are deficient in their faith and they didn't trust God. Nobody would think that. We live in a broken world. And I'm not going to get into all the, you know, our, our world produces enough food to feed everybody, but there's humans involved here. That's why our church gets involved in feeding and helping and ba- people's basic necessities. But at the end of the day, if I've sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it doesn't mean those the other things are unimportant, but what it does mean is that if I pass from this life due to a lack of those basic necessities. At the end of the day, I've lost nothing because my life is more than those material things. You can't take from me my eternal reward of being with Jesus forever. So what's my conclusion on all this? I came up with it after I sent the notes. Here's my, here's my mouthful. What do I do about all this, Pastor? How do I deal with the past, the present, and the future and worrying? What's this all look like? Jesus ends with this statement. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. You know what that means? Being worry-free doesn't mean being trouble-free. You excited about that? (laughs) Jesus doesn't say, here's the solution to worry. I'll make sure you don't have any trouble. Maturity in Christ is being able to say, "I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with some trouble right now. I'm just not consumed with worry about it. I'm concerned, I'm aware, I'm responsible. Sometimes worry masquerades as responsibility. Well, I have to be, consu- I have to be up all night about this. I'm being responsible. No, you, no, you're being distrustful. Plan, and then go to sleep. And then tomorrow, look at your plan again. A week, look at your plan again. Keep refining, okay? I'm not saying don't plan for those things, but here, here, here's, my, here's my statement for you. I'm going to just read it to you how I typed it out. Remember the past. Plan for the future, but live in the present. Don't live in the past. Don't live in the future. You can be so heavenly minded, you're of no. Live in the present. That keeps you from worrying too much because if you're in the present, you don't have to worry. You can act. I can't act on the future. I can't act on the past. I can remember it. I can learn from it. But I can't live in it. So there's no sense worrying about it. The future, I can think about it, prepare for it, strategize around it. But I write it in pencil because I can't live in it. I live in the present. When you learn to live in the present, it gets your mind off of the two places we worry about. 
and it puts it right. I, 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 I coach Little League. I'm like, you, like Chase says, you got to have a goldfish memory when you play baseball. And I got kids at 11 years old. They strike out. They're, they're upset for a month. I'm like, dude, you can do nothing about it. We always just, I say, do this. Flush it and move on. I'm worried about this pitcher because what I did last at bat, that makes no sense. You can't do anything about it. Go up there, see strikes, hit them hard. Live in the present. That's what you can do. What can we do about that right now? That's one of the things with my boys. I'm worried about the bus driver turn blah, blah, blah. Okay, what can we do about that right now? Nothing. We'll pray about it. Okay, and let's go to sleep. We'll deal with it tomorrow. Has enough trouble. Let's worry about right now. That's what we can do something about. Let's worry about that. You know, if you have to be consumed with something, be consumed with what you're, what you're dealing with right now. Remember the past, plan for the future, live in the present. Well, how does being a Christian help me with that? As the worship team comes, I'll give you the answer. But it's not in his sermon. It's in what Paul thought about what Jesus said a few years later. He asked this question. Since God, this is Romans 8, 32. Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? What he's saying is this, is if God didn't hold back Jesus from you, why do we worry that he'd hold back anything else that we need? If you can grab onto that, that God loved you enough that he gave you his son, it will begin the process of releasing you over the consuming fear of the tomorrow's supply of your basic needs. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thankful and aware of and filled with gratitude for what you've given us in Jesus. Lord, none of us are exempt from worrying. It hits all of us at different seasons in life. We're learning and we're growing. There's none of us that have mastered this. But over time and walking with you, Jesus, we see progress and growth in our life. We are thankful that your message is material things mean nothing because that's not practical and that's not how you wired us. But help us to move material things into their proper place. Grow us in the area of trust. Help us see in our hearts if there's areas of our life where we don't trust you like we should to remember your track record, to walk close enough to you to know your character so that we can trust and rest in you. Lord, we at the same time also own we will not be apathetic. We will not be uncaring. We will not be insulated. We will not be reckless. We will participate under your leadership, understanding that even as we work and as we budget and as we save, those are all disciplines that you've hardwired into our ability set to be able to be part of this awesome way that you provide for us. And in that, we also recognize we give you the credit. You're the one that gave us the ability to work. You're the one that gave us the skills that we have to be able to exchange. You gave us even those things. You didn't give those to all of your creation. You gave those to us, and we thank you for that. We worship you with those things. Lord, we want our conscience to be at rest today. We want our thought life to just be at peace before you, here and now. And so I pray that over my brothers and sisters today. I speak peace over their minds in regards to tomorrow's provision. Lord, we take the worry and we quantify it in our hands and we lay it at your feet today and say, Lord, cleanse us from this. We don't want to carry that with us anymore. 
Help us to, dis to distinguish between what is responsible and what is worry because they get blurred together sometimes. Help us to be responsible without being worried. And if there would be anyone here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that in this moment they would come to you to find the peace that passes all understanding through Jesus, through your righteousness, and through your kingdom. I pray that enthusiasm for your kingdom will elevate itself in, its heart, in our hearts so that it becomes supreme, so that we grab onto the idea that everything we do for your kingdom immediately equates to a reward we will enjoy forever. And Lord, when we grab that in our heart, it revolutionizes the way we treat every material thing in this world. Friend, if you're here today and you want to begin a relationship with God, it's only through Jesus you believe and you repent. That's what we do. We believe we need to be saved. We believe Jesus can save us and that he will save us if we ask. And we bring to God our desire to repent. That means to turn away from living our way and submit to his ways. That's it. That's all. That's all you have to believe. That's the willingness of your heart. And if that's true of you today, and you say, I am ready for that. Confess that to the Lord right now in your words. You can whisper it to him. You can say it to him. You can pray it to him. He is listening. He will hear you. Jesus, I need to be saved. Please save me. I turn to you. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.